they have a weighted doll that they put brown hair on and they dip it in blood and are repeatedly trying to fling it in the back of the RAV4 to show how the state's case of the blood spatter is impossible. And I get that you can you need you maybe need to do that for scientific reasons, but it just felt it just felt like something you didn't need to show. Um, and I and I think there is probably a part of them that knew that they were um, you know pushing pushing buttons and and being a little you know doing it for shock value. With USA Today Network Wisconsin, I'm Shane Nyman, and I'm Doug Schneider. This is Making a Mania, the Stephen Avery saga and why we're obsessed. One, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. It's a podcast exploring why the case made famous by making a murderer grab the attention of the world and hopefully what we can learn from it. By now, we've all seen the Netflix series, or at least the first season. We know the ins and we know the outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Reddit sleuth, or maybe you buzz through all the episodes like any other series. Whatever the case, we all know the basic story, and we're not here to rehash that. What we are here to do is pull back on all this, the series, the case, and the surrounding mania, to see what we can learn about it. There's a lot of interest because there are a lot of layers. We want to peel them back and examine them like nobody else has done. The first season of Making a Murderer ends with one of the many pieces of audio recorded from phone calls with Stephen Avery in prison. So I'm going to keep on working, even if it's wrong, he says, as pounding drums build the drama. I ain't gonna give up. As we've known, not only did Avery keep on working these last few years, so have the filmmakers behind the award-winning Netflix series. And now, finally, we're able to see what they've been up to. Nearly three years have passed since the release of Making a Murderer, which turned what was once just a well-known and controversial case in Wisconsin into a worldwide phenomenon. The story of the 2005 murder of photographer Teresa Halbach in Manitowoc County was as talked about as any TV show or criminal case in years. The spotlight burned bright for most of 2016. That summer, knowing they'd produced a hit, Netflix announced more episodes were in the works. Some of us were skeptical about what could be done. The real-life events continued to unfold, and filmmakers Laura Ricciardi and Moira Dimas followed along. A parade of motions and filings and court decisions came and went. But as news that a part two was finally going to be released, it became apparent that the new episodes, like the actual story playing out in reality, weren't going to have the jaw-dropping conclusion many were waiting for. Game-changing news be damned, out October 18th was Making a Murderer Part 2, Ten more hours of Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, their families, and their defenders. We did what a lot of people did last week, blitz through all ten episodes with conversations after each one. Now it's time to sit down and talk through what we saw and whether it's worth your time. If you've seen part one and are on the fence about part two, maybe this conversation can help. If you've already seen all of it, maybe you just want to hear more. Warning, the following conversation contains spoilers. That said, there's not a lot about the case that hasn't already been part of the news. So if you followed the updates on these cases and the efforts from Avery's lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, there's not a lot you don't know. So Doug, you and I were locked in a room for 10 and a half hours. How did part two compare to your expectations? Depends who you are. If you haven't been following the case and you expected the first season's level of drama, you're likely to be disappointed. I know several of my friends have been. 
I also think you'll be at least somewhat disappointed if you view the trailer as a solemn promise from Netflix. It hinted at lots of new information, revealed was the word that was used, and relied on some visuals that don't mean much in the actual season. Zellner firing a pistol is one example. As I wrote in our first online story, reframed would have been a more accurate word than revealed. Framing in the context of this story is important, but I don't know that what happened in the series rose to the level of what was promised in the trailer. I went into part two with a pretty specific set of expectations and some hope that they would be exceeded. I knew that we were going to get a lot of Kathleen Zellner, who was going to be driving the Avery story. I knew we were going to follow what was going on with Dassey and his attempts to get out. And then I also expected to see a lot of the Avery family, especially his parents, who are getting up there in age and still waiting for their son to come home. And so, as odd as it is to say, this second season was pretty much what I expected. We'll talk about this more later, but uh, bottom, bottom line is that the filmmakers set the bar extremely high with season one. They had more than a decade's worth of material to work with. This time they've got less than three years, and very little has changed significantly in the case. The protagonists, for lack of a better word, remain in prison. Season two did, however, contain some surprises. Uh, You get to go first this time. What, for you, were the biggest of those surprises? Um, As far as the surprises that I'd hoped for, they really didn't come. We got a lot of the sort of CSI side of what Zellner was doing with her forensic testing. But as far as things I didn't see coming, there really wasn't a lot I was a little surprised that Kathleen Zellner went all in on her alternative suspects, many of which were characters we had seen in the first part, one of them being Ryan Hillegas, the former boyfriend of Teresa Halbach, and um, more surprisingly, the two members of the Avery Dassey clan, Bobby Dassey, which is Brendan's brother, and Scott Toddick, which is Brendan's stepfather. Um, We knew that they were having fingers pointed at them in real life and and mentioned in motions. Um, But I was surprised that the series went there. Yeah, and up until this point, they'd pretty much been been limited to online prosecutors making making YouTube videos or or commenting on on Reddit forums. The thing that really surprised me was the, the strength that Zellner put behind some of her pronouncements. She'd say, we've just proven this at the end of an episode. And my reaction was kind of, you know, I haven't sat through an entire homicide case for a while. And you've clearly created a possibility of of reasonable doubt if you're arguing this in front of a jury, but I don't know that you've proven anything. And then some of the elements of, of the conclusion, her conclusion, and this is something that, that I'm not going to reveal in the episode. I'd always wondered if the case was sort of two problems operating independently of each other, but I hadn't envisioned it the way she says it happened. And the possibility that she creates is is extremely interesting. In terms of, of making a murder as a work of television, the production, the editing felt a lot more choppy and, and disorganized than the first season. They're trying to weave two very separate 
story threads together, which is going to be a challenge for anyone. Demos and, and Ricciardi producing part one as a filmmaking debut was kind of like Harper Lee writing To Kill a Mockingbird as a, as a first novel. The second act, no matter what it is, can never be as good. Okay, question about story. What's the climax of part two? So to me, the the whole climax of the season comes early in the 10th and final episode. And it's a scene that I think when the filmmakers got a hold of it, they probably said, okay, we can finish this thing now. Because more than any court ruling in either Avery or Dassey's case, the phone call between Stephen Avery calling from prison and talking to his sister, Barb, with uh, Brendan's stepfather, Scott Toddick, in the background. And they basically start screaming at each other because the family has found out that Scott and Bobby Dassey are being brought forth as alternative suspects and being named publicly as alternative suspects. Um, you know, there's a, there's a phone call that's, that's just complete madness and it's definitely the dramatic high point of these 10 episodes. You can certainly make that argument, and it, that's also a good, good setup for the potential of a part three because now you have a family divided. The uh, Toddick's, Brendan Assey's family seem to believe that Stephen Avery and, and his legal team were allies now they've discovered that in an attempt to get Stephen freed or at least win him a new trial, they're presenting Brendan's brother and possibly his stepfather as alternative suspects. The part where the series kind of peaked for me, and, and I basically said, okay, this is, this is over, this is a key moment, um, is when Stephen Drizzen observes that if the, the Dassey team doesn't win a particular appeal, that he, Drizzen, will be dead by the time Brendan gets out of prison. Drizzen would be, I think, 87 or 88 when Brendan is first eligible for parole, which is not to, to say that he's guaranteed to get it. Um, that'll probably be a, a very political debate at the time. And Dassey would be 59. And, and at the moment that, that, that Drizzen makes that observation, you realize that as much as so many people want this, want this kid, it's hard to see him as anything but, even though he's, he's now in his late 20s, they want to see him get a chance to let people determine if he really was involved. You know he's basically toast in, t- in terms of having a chance to have his case reconsidered. Prosecutor Ken Kratz, when we interviewed him for the podcast, insisted that, that the Dassey interrogation was legit because Brendan entered the interrogation room as a witness and turned himself into a suspect by stating details of, of the crime. It still offends me that a 16-year-old with an IQ of 80 had no one in that room looking out for his interests, no, no attorney, no parent. And the state thought that was okay. You talk about um, whether or not Brendan gets out. It's it's odd to think of put yourself in in his mother's shoes. If he does get out, it now looks like it could be at the expense of her husband and her other son. That's a 
pretty horrible situation to be in. Okay, what did you think was the low point of the 10 episodes of part two? It depends what you mean by low point. Um, the, the most jarring moment for my senses was the use of a mannequin wrapped in what appeared to be electrical tape and weighted down being repeatedly tossed into the back of a Toyota RAV4 like the one that Teresa Halbach had been driving as a means of trying to see how blood would spatter in 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 such a situation my initial reaction was that was over the top but if the filmmakers are, are being honest and in, in showing you the story as it happened they needed to show it maybe just not so much yeah and it it was also oddly timed in the season and in the first episode they sort of shoehorn in this maybe 10 minute segment where they're showing more clips of Teresa when she was alive and talking with some of her college friends and people who knew her and then I don't know within that same hour they have a weighted doll that they put brown hair on and they dip it in blood and are repeatedly trying to fling it in the back of the RAV4 to show how the state's case of the blood spatter is impossible. And I get that you can you need you maybe need to do that for scientific reasons, but it just felt it just felt like something you didn't need to show. Um, and I and I think there is probably a part of them that knew that they were um, you know pushing pushing buttons and and being a little you know, doing it for shock value. It's jarring transition at the end of an episode that's mainly about human stories. It's the first episode we're catching up with people. We're seeing the the parental suffering and, and things like that, and we go to the representation of a murder victim being tossed into the back of an SUV over and over again with with noticeable audio. Again, I think that it's part of the investigation. It's part of the the attorney's tactics, but it they really hit you over the head with it, and it was it was just jarring. I was more offended that they felt the need to put the person acting as Teresa in a late episode in a brown wig. I mean, what did that add, especially when the audience realizes it's watching what might be a reenactment of a woman driving to her death? Yeah, I kind of get the point of wanting to plot out maybe her moves up until the time she disappeared, but the whole thing just had this this feeling like it was one of those one of those forensic files reenactments with the with the terrible actors and there's no reason to put the put the wig on her or even really have her driving the RAV4 um, the whole thing just felt it just felt melodramatic and icky yeah I, I thought you were going to say cheap um, I, you know I, I understand the 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 need to test the scenario I understand the need to show some things but I will I'll go out on a limb now and say that 
that will be the scene that, that touches off the most anger on social media from the folks who are, are in the Avery and Dassey or guilty camp. Yeah, either that or fleeing the blood-soaked doll into the back of the RAV4. As I, I worked on this script last night, I went back to the notes I took as we watched the series. Uh, 27 pages of notes from three days looking for spots where uh, you, you, me, and reporter Allison Durr were, were underwhelmed or upset at the same time. There were really only, only two of those besides the mannequin. One was a Chicago courtroom scene. The filmmakers were handicapped because they couldn't get even still photos, and so it was basically long audio clips over courtroom sketches, uh, and, and we were basically visibly struggling to pay attention. Um, and then there was a point at the end of episode three where it's completely uncare, unclear where the case and the show were going. Um, the filmmakers started using an infographic later to explain the case as it relates to the court system, but they could have helped viewers by using more graphics and, and using them earlier. And, and finally, it's not a low point per se, but the rep- repetition and the self-promotion also bothered me, and, and I think it bothered others, others in the room too. Um, the, the point is made over and over, or the points are made over and over. Season one got a lot of media coverage. Zellner lives in Illinois and has to drive up I-43, and lawyers have to go to court for hearings. The lawyerly walk-ups felt like they were padding the episode to make it long enough. So although this is a documentary and it, it tells a real story, um, it is also a, a Netflix series. So what did you think of it as just a piece of entertainment? Part one was this great 10-hour drama with super compelling characters that we'd known little or nothing about, so viewers learned as we watched. Part two is a reasonably important update on some people we've come to know and have feelings about with several episodes of CSI stirred in, only there's no David Caruso to come in and solve everything at the end. What I keep coming back to when people ask me what I think about part two is my answer is it's fine. Um, I thought the first season was was really engaging and really interesting, and I was not surprised that it blew up the way that it did. Um, this this second season, as expected, has a lot less story to churn through, um, and so because of that, there's not really any jaw dropping moments. There's not really anything you're gonna, you know, your head's not gonna hit the ceiling and you're not gonna freak out and you're not gonna want to blow up Twitter because you're so outraged about what you saw. Because if you watch season one, you already know the the situation these guys are in and. You know, it's not spoiling anything to say that they're still in the same situations. It's really a different challenge for the filmmakers, and I would love to know how much that entered into their approach to part two and their decision-making. Did they, did they approach anything differently knowing that you're going from an audience that, that knows essentially nothing about this case to 
people who've been reading every word for for three years and talking about it on internet forums and making homemade videos does that enter into your decision at all or do you simply present what you see and and let the audience figure it out it's gonna be really interesting to see how this thing ages too depending on what happens to avery and dassey down the line um it could be something that people go back to to look at how hard people were working to try to get them out and and how solid the cases were and if if they if they don't ever get out then you know people are going to look back at it sort of for the same curious reason of of look what was going on and and that didn't even work so i mean how messed up is this system if you have these high profile lawyers um with with worldwide audiences paying attention and and they still can't change anything so when does season three drop and what's it about or is there even a season three? I always thought that a season two was a tall task. I didn't know if they would ever put it out because, again, the, there just wasn't a lot happening in real life that would warrant 10 episodes, 10 hours. Um, so it's hard for me to make a prediction. I would guess that there will not be a third season um, because, again, if if there is a third season, unless there's some huge breaking news related to these two, then it's just going to be more of what we saw in part two, and that is people trying to get them out. I'm, I'm going to say it's too early to tell. It depends what happens. I also wonder, the, the filmmakers have, have created a reputation for themselves. Netflix now has a franchise. Do they go the route of of serial in in terms of uh, real legal system courtroom drama and and find another case because certainly this isn't the the only case of its ilk in in the U.S. Um, you know, True Detective, where the first season was about one case in Louisiana and the second was about one case in in California. Yes, it's it's fictional, but it, it gives them some, some room to move. If, if I'm Netflix, I want to keep Demos and Ricciardi producing content for me rather than somebody else because you know they're in demand uh, as, as documentarians, and I've got to believe that somewhere some uh, ratings – obsessed network exec is going hey let's get these two to do uh do our nighttime crime drama in the in the the audience size will be through the roof earlier you made reference to harper lee having to follow up to kill a mockingbird i think the real um the real daunting follow-up for these two filmmakers won't be this part two it'll be what they do after they leave making a murderer behind one of the episodes we, we did when we first were doing the podcast was exploring whether making a murder is a work of, of documentary and or a work of journalism. Your thoughts? Well, I would say that uh, this part two felt like less of a work of journalism than the first part. And I say that mainly because this part felt more like it had a narrator and its narrator was Kathleen Zellner, 
she was seemed like always the center of attention and I know she was only the focus of the Avery side of the story and not 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 the Dassey pieces or or always what was going on with the Avery family but it seemed like the whole thing was kind of through her perspective she was the guiding light through all of it she was the one setting the context um, you know, we had her. She she drives the story, is what you're trying to say. And, yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. You're getting Zellner in her law office with her interns or her law clerks, whoever they are, and and those scenes just felt like they were staged. It was like you were watching bad reality TV there for a few minutes, and and those kinds of things popped up throughout the se- throughout the season. Um, so yeah, she was really the driving force behind everything and really pushed the narrative along. And if, if Avery had a, a less outspoken, less boastful, less colorful lawyer working on his case, I don't know that a season two would have even been possible. Yeah. I I was struck by some of the same things. You, you sit there and wonder, do do these conversations in the law office actually go like this? If you got national experts on blood spatter or burning bodies, do you sit around the office talking like like they're talking? There's there's one point I don't remember who it was where they cast a sideways glance toward the camera, and that was a big reminder that that folks were aware that the cameras were there. You see it from other people. Dolores A. Avery Stevens' mother at one point is is clearly uncomfortable that there's a camera in her face. Alan, his father, at one point is is swearing because he's being filmed at the end of a tough day and he's tired and he's he's hungry and the last thing he wants to be on uh, is on TV. That comes across as real. To the question of, of, of documentary, I'm going to try and, and hearken back to what our, our TV experts from the previous episode told us. I think they'd say it's documentary in the sense that the things we see actually happened. But there are times in, in people, and particularly in Zellner's office, that feel scripted or done because the camera is there, I certainly come away feeling that this wasn't as natural as part one seemed. Yeah, you have you have uh, also scenes not just in the office but also in the car. I remember there being a lot of parts where, where Zellner was being driven around and you can tell that they said, okay, let's all have this conversation right now that explains what we're doing, why we're doing it, what the results are going to indicate so that the viewers know what's happening. It's sort of a double-edged sword, though, because as we're watching and talking about it, there were times when we say this show really needs a narrator to help us understand. It, it needs Sarah Koenig in, in serial periodically pulling back and applying context and saying what she's thinking but but then when we see some of those scenes um, Kathleen Zellner in the role of of narrator for lack of a better times they feel sometimes awkward and, and scripted so let's go back to our earlier question should you watch making a murderer part two short answer a qualified yes 
you should watch it if you're interested in how the key people have changed over time. You should watch it if you haven't been following media coverage of the case. If you're okay with learning maybe more than you want to know about forensics, then yeah, you should watch it. Better yet, you should watch it because it's an important work that uses an actual case to raise some really difficult questions about class and about the American justice system. But yes, it's worth watching. I say if you found the first season addicting and you've thought about it maybe regularly in the years since and you've been clamoring for another season, go ahead and watch it. You can start, watch a couple episodes. If it doesn't grab you, you don't have to finish it. But I would say if you only have had casual interest and you thought the first season was fine and you know maybe you were partially outraged by it, I don't think that there's a real necessity to go check out season two. I also think it's important to remember that watching Making a Murderer is not a fun experience. It's dreary, it's brutal, it's sometimes gross in this season, and everyone involved is having an absolutely awful time. And it's kind of one of those shows that when you watch it, you're not exactly, you're not having fun, you're not smiling, you're not laughing. Um, it it kind of it wears you down. So that's something to also remember that if, if season one sort of dulled your mood, season two is going to do the same thing. Excellent point. It's, it's not the stuff of Friday evening watch parties when you're tired. It, it, takes, it takes some effort. It, it, it takes some use of your brain. Learn more about this podcast, Making a Murderer, and the cases of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey at postcrescent.com. Our journalists have been reporting on these topics for years. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Making a Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen recorded and edited the podcast. Audio comes from the USA Today Network Wisconsin Archive. 